One of the mightiest houses of the Vale, the Royces still boast proudly of their descent from the First Men and their last great king, Robar II. Even to this day, the Lords of Runestone go into battle clad in the bronze armor of their forebears, etched with runes that are said to ward the armor's wearer from harm. Houses tend to have heritage characteristics, the term I made up. <laughs> they aren't universal, and they aren't always the defining feature, but they're distinctly associated, such as generosity and debt paying regarding the Lannisters, or Boltons and cruelty, or Umbers and being large. Now, not every house has one, but among the ones that do, a lot of times I think we can use this information to get a better sense of how that particular house is going to fit into the story from here on out, and it defines how they fit so far as well, quite often. It describes what role they will play, from a literary sense, at the very least, but it's possible to be somewhat precise as well in some cases. House Royce might be one of those cases. Judge that for yourself as we delve into their history, both recent and ancient. Hello, and welcome again to another episode of History of Westeros podcast, the podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones. No Game of Thrones chat today. This episode is all A Song of Ice and Fire, though, of course, predictions about the books often are parallel to predictions about the show. Now, of course, as you've noticed, there's no Shea today, but she is part of this episode. She's working on the other side of the camera today. We're trying out some new production techniques we're trying to up the quality of our videos and our edited audio that appears on iTunes. So it makes more sense for her to focus on that for this episode to make sure we get all those things right. And she'll be back behind the camera fairly soon, probably for the next episode. I also want to thank Lady Gwyn of Radio Westeros for helping us out with the quotes today. Uh, you should, of course, be aware of Radio Westeros by now. If you're not, check them out at RadioWesteros.com. Uh, they have a fantastic podcast, and some of the production upgrades we've had in the show are from their influence. We, we trade secrets, <laughs> so to speak, and help each other out. This is our first House History episode in quite a while, and that's exciting. Uh, we've been wanting to cover notable but non-great houses, because the great houses, I think, have been pretty well covered out in the fandom and in the community. And although I think we could probably offer some new takes on the Lannisters, the Baratheons, etc., I think it's these secondary houses that we could really shine a light on and bring them more to the front of the fandom. Especially because I think some of these secondary houses are not only popular, not only things that you guys want us to cover, but I think a lot of them will become more important as the story goes on. We'll provide some examples and predictions on how we think that will play out for House Royce during this episode. But also... Heck, we just think they're cool. House Royce is interesting. And in the future, when we do other house history episodes, the houses that we think are the coolest and that you guys think are the coolest, definitely going to take higher priority over other houses. Or because we think they're going to rise in importance, as I said. So there's a lot of reasons why we want to pick specific houses. But if there's houses you want to see covered, let us know. House Dane is another one we're going to be working on. And we're already working on, rather. And that should be out before the end of 2015, we expect. Maybe early 2016. Depends. We never can be too sure of where we're going to find ourselves in terms of writing episodes, because that's just how the creative process works, at least for us. So, this, the Roises, there's just, they're, they're behind the scenes a lot, but they're involved in almost everything. They have ties to the Starks, to the Aarons, to the Targaryens. And I don't just mean ties like networking, I mean blood ties. They're perhaps the best example in all the story and all the storylines, all the sources about a first man and Andal cultures mingling 
There's other houses that have combined First, first Man and Andal culture pretty well. Blackwoods are one example. But the Royces, I think, are number one in that regard. And you find them everywhere. From the Night's Watch to the Rainbow Guard to, of course, their home in the Vale to the Freys. They have marriages to Walder Frey, etc. They're all over the place. Elaine, of course, is watching the Game of Thrones play out in the Vale with Bronzion Royce and Littlefinger at the center of it. And then there's Elaine's friend, Miranda Royce, who seems to be a bit of a up-and-coming schemer herself. So there's a lot to, to like about them and a lot to be curious about. And we're going to shine light on some things that I think you all probably haven't caught. A lot of these things we didn't know before we started researching this episode. And that's why I say that. House Royce's words are, we remember. And that's important and it definitely seems to speak to their sort of internal house culture. They're very big on tradition. They're a bit stubborn. Though maybe not as stubborn as they seem in some ways. Their sigil is a black, is a bunch of black iron studs on a bronze field, bordered with first man runes. Now, I don't know what these runes mean. We'll, we'll give a few theories throughout the episode as what we think they might mean or what they might have meant, as these things can change over time. But they're pretty cool. I think having ancient runes on your sigil, that's a big plus in my book for your cool factor. Now, an estuary is the area created between a river and the sea it empties into. The confluence of two very different living environments, salt and freshwater, forms an unusual meeting of two worlds. And while the vast majority of species prefer one or the other of these two clear choices, a few stand out as living in between. Now, I'm not the first podcaster to use this metaphor about an estuary. It's, it's, it's been done, typically in history podcasts that I listen to, as describing an area where two cultures come together in a border. And this creates kind of an interesting subculture that has elements of both. Such is the case with House Royce of Runestone, who adhere to some of the most notable Andal traditions like worship of the Seven, knighthood, and chivalry. But the Vale is also where the Andals come first, and it is the Vale of all the kingdoms of Westeros where connection to the ancient houses of Andalos is most prized. The Royces are considered by most... The noblest house in the Vale, save for House Aaron, of course. But despite the emphasis on Andal blood, pride, and honor, the Royces are equally distinct in their adherence to the ancient traditions of the First Men. We suspect they still have their weirwood tree, in fact. Now, back in 2012 or so, we did a couple of episodes on the weirwoods, and we talk about whether or not there is some sort of genetic continuum based in the weirwood trees that keeps these houses looking the same over so long because some houses don't have a distinct look and some do and it seems from our research that those that do have a look have their weirwood tree still now of course because they adhere to ancient traditions of the first men it's not a stretch to think they still have their weirwood but it even goes farther because of how stubbornly they cling to these old traditions now the royces we don't have enough descriptions or enough Royces, really, on what they look like to say if they have a look. I have noticed that there is a good number, a couple of cases of gray eyes amongst the Royces. But gray eyes is really more of a first man thing than it is something that's unique to any particular house. Jan Royce is really big. He's as tall as Sandor Clegane. And he had three sons, one of which is still living in the series at this point. And we don't hear of them being particularly large. So I don't know that they have a look, but I don't know that they don't. So... 
If you want more information on that Werewood theory, head back to our Werewood episodes from a couple years ago and check that out. A couple of things before we dive into the major details. I want to mention an upcoming new project from History of Westeros that we'll be launching in the coming months as soon as we make the milestone. It's going to be called Aziz versus Chapter. I guess that's a working title. We might come up with another name, but it describes pretty well what it does or what it is. And that's me breaking down one of my favorite chapters. Sometimes it'll be people voting on which chapter to do. Sometimes I'll just pick one that I like. And to make this happen, you can check us out on Patreon for more details. www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash History of Westeros. Of course, we've got a lot of other benefits outlined there. But Aziz versus Chapter is going to be for subscribers only. So it's a small thing, but it's going to be a cool thing. So I hope you all are interested enough to sign up for that. You can be a part of it for only a dollar a month. That's all it takes. So I know spending money on podcasts isn't what some people want to do. But this podcast will always remain free. But this the, the Aziz first chapter, only a dollar a month. That's all it's going to take. So folks, I hope that's worth it to you. And if not, well, you'll still get plenty of content for free from us. So no worries. One particularly powerful supporter, King's Justice Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate is important, as well as Joshua the Raw, Joshua Hayes Cutter, History of Westeros' first sword. So thanks to people like those two, we are getting very close to that goal and launching his East versus chapter. Now, some meta-history of House Royce. We don't have a lot of specific commentary from George R. R. Martin himself. Actually, we don't have any, really. Uh, and that's something we always like to look for, but sometimes he makes some comments in the So Spake Martins in an interview. He makes comments about a certain house that maybe we can read into or maybe read too much into. <laughs> that is how this fandom works sometimes. We're all familiar with that. But in this case, we don't really have much to go on. So we have to read in between the lines of the story itself. And hey, House Royce is the first house named in the series. An honor they would surely claim if they could only learn of it somehow. God put them first. Right there at the beginning, they'd say, a brave hot knight of House Royce is the first character. Yeah, but he dies first, too. <laughs> In the process, though, he gives us a taste of what House Royce is all about. You're going to see this kind of behavior throughout this episode. It's really going to become a trend you're going to see amongst the Royces. Dance with me, then. He lifted his sword high over his head, defiant. His hands trembled from the weight of it, or perhaps from the cold. Yet in that moment, Will thought, he was a boy no longer, but a man of the Night's Watch. Defiant. That's a key word for today. I think that the word defines, <laughs> defiant defines House Royce very well, both in the ancient times and in the modern times of A Song of Ice and Fire. Now, I didn't give a spoiler warning before this episode because, really, we don't have any particular spoilers in this episode. We're not really going to get into the spoiler chapter other than to mention some characters that are present in it. So you are safe as far as that goes. Safe, as far as that goes, means that you've read the five books, though. If you're a TV show-only watcher, you might pick up a few things, but honestly, I don't think that's even going to be spoiler for TV show watchers. Sir Waymar Royce is oft considered foolish by readers, Na naive perhaps, but he was brave when facing that White Walker in single combat, and he did cleverly observe that the cold couldn't have been uh, what killed the wildlings because they were tracking people and, and the uh, wall had been melting recently, so... It didn't really fit. So he's a, he, he's not an idiot. He was maybe a fool, but he's not an idiot, if I can 
you know, distinguish between types of dumbness. <laughs> but you kind of have to agree with the charge of naivete in particular. He should have listened to his veteran comrades, the people with experience, the people who had been beyond the wall many times, whereas he had been there, you know, he'd only been in the watch for about six months. So that was definitely silly of him. But also some of the blame lies in placing an inexperienced 18-year-old in command. And it's hard to disagree with that in any case. Later we find out that this was in large part because of his family name. Because he's a Royce, he got given a command. It was a bit of, well, not nepotism, but you know what I, you know, you know what I mean. It's favoritism for these noble houses. And that didn't, that didn't go so well, did it? And another example of why rereading is so valuable, we also learn later how rare it is for knights to join the watch these days. This becomes extremely clear as the series unfolds, but none of us knew any of that the first time reading the prologue. You didn't know when you were reading the prologue that Sir Waymar Royce was outstanding in that he was a knight in the Night's Watch, which rarely gets knights to join anymore. That, that, we might have thought about, thought about that later. Some point down the line, you're reading Clash of Kings and you realize, you know, Sir Waymar being in the Night's Watch was kind of unusual. But, circling back again, it actually ceases to be so abnormal. Well, let me tell you why. Consider that several knights like Sir Alistair Thorne or Sir Jeremy Riker are there because they were on the wrong side of Robert's Rebellion. Pretty straightforward. Others took the black because they were getting on in years, like the old bear. So a young knight slash lordling like Sir Waymar might look even rarer or outstanding. The chance of this happening is small, but for some houses it's less small. For example, a young knight from Dorne, or say, a Greyjoy of Pike, is almost unthinkable in the watch. Not entirely unthinkable, but close to. But a Stark of Winterfell is kind of normal. People are like, oh, a Stark in the watch? Yeah, that's, that's happened a ton of times. So nothing strange about that. So, but that's information that's front and center. We know that. We, we could all have made that guess without doing any particular research. Like, Greyjoy's on the wall? That's pretty rare. Dornishman on the wall? That's, that happens too, but it's even rarer. But a Stark on the wall? That's, that's normal. We all know that. But with secondary houses, it's not as clear because these details are more subtle or they're just not there at all and you have to infer them. So rereads and research and some of these gems come, produce some of these gems rather, and, and that's what you've got us for and that's what we've got you for. So thanks to George R. R. Martin, though, there's a lot of fun stuff to piece together. And this is a house that we can say a lot about because... We don't have to make a lot of guesses, although we will make some guesses because that's fun to do. But there's really a lot of information there. It's just between the lines like it often is. More to the point, though, again, how Royce's words are, we remember. And, well, that's ambiguous, but it does apply in a lot of ways. Throughout this episode, we'll see specific examples of Royce's stubbornness in politics, like when Littlefinger buys or befriends everyone important in the Vale, including a Royce from the cadet branch, but not Bronze Jan Royce. Speaking of his nickname... And possibly more stubbornness, there's another famous one, that ancient tradition of wearing the runic bronze armor, which we'll certainly get into. Talking about, I'm not going to wear the armor. No, although that would be cool, though. I would look pretty badass sitting here in a suit of bronze armor giving a podcast. While a young knight of uh, joining the Night's Watch is rare, for House Royce, it's, it's closer to like a Stark joining the Watch than it is a Greyjoy. Which brings us back to Waymar, most certainly not nearly the first Royce to go on arranging. He did, however, quite likely become the first Royce ever to become a white. <laughs> He's certainly the first white we see at all, period, too. A lot of firsts here for the Royces. Not all good ones, but interesting ones. 
He also kills our prologue POV character. That's another first. <laughs> and this triggers a series of events crucial to the early part of A Song of Ice and Fire that might not be so clear, although you guys know all these details, I'm sure, but perhaps you didn't consider them as a group. Why did Benjen go ranging so shortly after John joined the Watch? To go find Sir Waymar. That was the whole point. He didn't come back, as we know, though his companions did, also as whites, like Sir Waymar became. I wonder if we'll see Sir Waymar's white body appear sometime, you know? I, he hasn't, he's, he's got to be out somewhere, shambling around, perhaps. <laughs> but the companions of Benjen came back, and in white form, and they wreaked wreaked havoc, including killing the aforementioned Jeremy Riker, uh, who became Benjen's replacement as First Ranger. But that's the beginning of the books. Let's go back to the beginning of House Royce. Part 1. The Bronze Kings. I do a lot of reading, and I think my interests are probably similar to a lot of yours out there. In general, I probably have a lot in common with most of you all, in, in general, but, but I digress. So from now on, you will hear us occasionally recommend a book through Amazon or Audible. To be clear, I will absolutely never suggest something that Ashea or I don't have personal experience with. This time I'm going to recommend The Last Kingdom by Bernard Cornwell. It's recently become a TV show on BBC America. It's awesome, by the way. We, we all love it. All of the history of Westeros team, including Sean from House Beard. But I probably don't need to tell you fine folks that books are generally better than TV, although it's worth doing both in this case, just like Game of Thrones. Well, some of you would agree with that. Some of you wouldn't. <laughs> but it's definitely true in the case of The Last Kingdom. It's set in the 9th century. It's a really well-written adventure-type series. It's not complex like Game of Thrones. Don't, be, don't get the wrong idea. But it is really fun. It's really well-written. And it really does a good job of putting you in that setting, which is a really interesting time period in general. You get tales of Danish Vikings, Northmen, Saxon warriors, Alfred the Great, and a lot of other fun stuff. As of this episode, I finished the fourth book, Sword Song. Now, to purchase The Last Kingdom, go to historyofwesteros.com and click on the link on the right sidebar. Any shopping you do at Amazon through historyofwesteros.com, as long as you used our links to get there, we'll get credit for us, and it's zero additional cost to you. So as long as you follow our links to get there, we get credit. Back to business. We know well that the Vale contains the most ancient and all-noble blood, but as the world of ice and fire tells us, there are still houses in the Vale who proudly proclaim their descent from the First Men, such as the Red Forts and the Royces. Nothing is specified regarding the founding of House Royce, and though we hear of them in the Age of Heroes, it could easily be that they date back to the Dawn Age, making them one of Westeros' most ancient families. Like a handful of those families, the Royces were kings. Bronze kings. Now, a little bit of a segue... You wonder if there's a connection between the Boltons and the Royces from ancient times. Now, I don't want to say Royce and Roos. That's, I don't think that's meaningful. But the Red Kings of the Boltons connecting to the Red Fort. Yeah, my, and Domeric Bolton was sired, or not sired, but was fostered at the Red Fort. So it's possible some sort of ancient connection, maybe even a blood connection between those houses. But there, of course, would be no way to know that for sure. Now, that famous runic bronze armor, which will pop up several times in this episode, it's probably the distinguishing feature that gave the Bronze Kings their nickname. These kings wore what they dubbed the runic crown, which I assume was made of bronze and had runes on it, a lot like their sigil. Now, of their castle, Runestone, we know very little, although it seems to be a powerful castle, given that they're a powerful house. 
and those two things usually go together. Perhaps it's situated near deposits of copper and tin, which is what you need to make bronze. We would also expect, as we talked about in our episodes in the Werewoods and earlier in this episode, that they still have their heart tree again. Now, given the evidence of their power and the regard in which they're held, it is likely that the castle is not only strong, but very strong. And we also would say the same things about the surrounding lands. They probably have fertile ground. They probably have a lot of arable land. Uh, they control some of their own small ports nearby and are near to a major one. And that would be Gulltown, just to the south. A strong natural harbor that gave rise to what is the only city in the Vale now. But back then it was just a town. Although a town in the ancient times would still be a very significant thing. It's likely they had both conflict and accord with the kings of House Shet, who were the original rulers of Gulltown. And with that kind of proximity, yeah, they probably fought, got married, fought, got married, probably a little bit of both, back and forth over thousands of years. Well, maybe there wasn't accord, but there was definitely conflict. We'll get into that shortly. So who came first, though? The Royces or the Shets? Perhaps they have a common origin. And were once one ruling family split during the Dawn Age by some internal conflict. Or as with Garth Greenhand, they both originate from a legendary ancient figure from the ancient heroes. But unlike Garth, this figure, whoever he or she was, is now forgotten. So, so much for we remember, huh? <laughs> Maybe they do know and they just haven't told us. The Age of Heroes contains all these great mythical founding figures like Brandon the Builder, the Grey King, Lan the Clever, Durin God's Grief, etc. All these ancient houses are tied to one of these, but not the Royces. The singers say that the Andal hero Sir Artis Aaron rode upon a falcon to slay the Griffin King upon the Giant's Lance, thereby founding the kingly line of House Aaron. This is foolishness, however. A corruption of the true history of the Arons with legends out of the Age of Heroes. Instead, the Aaron King supplanted the High Kings of House Royce. So the Arons didn't kill any kind of Griffin King. It was House Royce. Where did the Griffin idea even come from? <laughs> Some people suggest that it might have come from dragons, which is possible from a distance. Yeah, that's possible. I guess taking down a Griffin is cooler than taking down a, I don't know, a Bronze runic salmon? I don't know. Okay, we get it. House, House Aaron had a better propaganda team than House Royce. But I really wonder what tale existed prior to this. Surely there was some great story that was suppressed to get this Artie's Aaron stuff in the front. Who, whatever they replaced must have been a cool story. But I'm guessing... Here's the first of many guesses, I suppose. This heroic ancient Royce figure, if he was a Royce or not, and he very well may have been, was known for some of the traits we commonly see in the Royces throughout the eons. That's kind of how it tends to work. So let's take a few guesses. So the guy was probably stubborn, maybe loyal to a fault, or maybe he inspired loyalty in his followers if he had them. Certainly he uh, worshipped the old gods, I would think. Uh, or maybe not, because this predates even some of the first men's you know, attention to the, to the old gods. Even that is not certain. Definitely wore bronze, though, I would think. <laughs> so, but look at, it the, look at it the opposite way, though. It, it, it helps to not just look at what things they have in common. What things they don't have in common can sometimes be telling as well. So, things we don't see Royces do. Well, we don't see them be terribly opportunistic. All these examples of Royces throughout history and in A Song of Ice and Fire, we don't really see that. Though we do see, we have seen some corruption that we'll, that we'll talk about later. Uh, so they're not entirely, they're not, I'm not saying they're pure. 
Now, presumption of right to rule is another matter. They do not lack for pride. When the pride that only highborn nobles can have mixes with this deeply held tradition of stubbornness, you get some interesting characters. Particularly, you get perhaps some examples that are maybe like this mythical nameless Vale hero who got name-jacked by Sir Artis Aaron. I can imagine his story involving great hardships or having to do something really unpopular because it was the right thing to do or because it was tradition. No cowardly steel. Bronze is the way to go, right? Yeah. So they, it's kind of like swimming upstream. Like salmon. <laughs> the bronze salmon. That was probably his name, right? No wonder people forgot about him because he was goofy. The salmon of Royce. How did a salmon slay a griffin? A heavy current is one thing, but swimming up a mountain is a bit much. Ah, the number of Royces who have died whilst wearing this runic armor is daunting. Hmm, so you would think that they might learn something. And later we'll show that they maybe they have. But regardless, because they do continue on. And one thing you don't see from living things that don't adapt, they're still around and doing quite well. Normally if you don't adapt, you go extinct. Like, like bronze salmon. The truth is that House Royce has clearly adapted. Maybe not as quickly as other houses, but they're clearly doing some things right because, again, they're still around, they're still really powerful. The stubbornness hasn't stopped them from, from having the place that they have today. You don't have that kind of success without being capable. But either way, though, bronze fish is a really terrible idea. So another piece of heritage that House Royce has clung to is their First Men origins, of course, and their wars with House Shet may shed some light on why this cultural pride is so important to them. Part 2. Steel Beats Bronze The area constantly contested back in the old days by the Shets and the Royces is, well, it's the bottom finger. If you're looking at a map, find the fingers, look at the bottom one. You'll see Gulltown and you'll see Runestone and you'll see that they're very close together. Now, the reason the harbor at Gulltown is so special is it's because a natural harbor is sheltered. It's able to stay open even in winter. You can see why that would be important during winter to be able to still be able to ship goods in without, you know, things being frozen over. And that's probably why the Royces wanted it. The Shets, for their part, probably wanted the greatest castle in the region to go with their wealthy town, or at least for the Royces to stop being a problem. Perhaps they thought if they became powerful enough, people would stop making fun of them for being called Shet. <laughs> Not the best name. Though Gulltown itself was seemingly secure behind its thick stone walls, King Osgood and his forebears had long been waging an intermittent war against the bronze kings of Runestone, a more powerful neighbor from a house as old and storied as their own. Yorwick Royce, sixth of that name, had claimed the runic crown when his sire died in battle three years previous and had proved to be a most redoubtable foe, defeating the Shets in several battles and driving them back inside their town walls. Now, it's well known that the Andals came in waves, a variety of groups and adventurers at different times, gradually taking over most of Westeros, but starting in the Vale and the Fingers in particular. That's where the Andal invasions started. So it's even more noteworthy that House Royce is still so uh, in touch with their first men roots, considering that they're at the epicenter of where the Andals came to Westeros. Now, it's much less well-known that the Shets, because the Royces were beating them so badly, triggered one of these waves. Other first men of the Vale had hired Andal mercenaries for their wars prior to this, and it had gone badly, the sellswords turning on their employers. But King Osgood Shet thought he knew better, or something would be different this time. Not only did he marry his daughter to a powerful Andal knight, himself 
to the knight's daughter and his son and heir to another daughter of that knight, but he converted to the faith. But the knight, Sir Gerald Grafton, was no different than the others. After helping his father-in-law push back the Royces, he took the crown for himself. The success of Sir Gerald and the other treacherous sellswords who went from hireling to crowned king surely encouraged more Andals to cross. So you could say that these conflicts with the Royces and the Shets actually encouraged more Andal incursions, as backwards as that sounds. But they weren't going out without a fight. The, the first men maybe knew they were overwhelmed, but with the Royces around, they weren't going to go quietly. Not all the lords and kings of the first men were so foolish as to invite their conquerors into their halls and homes. Many chose to fight instead. Chief amongst these was bronze king Yorwick VI of Runestone, who led the Royces to several notable victories over the Andals, at one point smashing seven longships that had dared to land upon his shores and decorating the walls of Runestone with the heads of their captains and crews. His heirs carried on the fight after him, for the wars between the First Men and the Andals lasted for generations. Now, as champions of the First Men cause, for lack of a better name, House Royce must have earned itself an honored name amongst the followers of the Old Gods, which was most of Westeros around this time. Or so we're told. Certainly they stood out amongst the other houses of the Vale resisting the Andals. Here's a fantastic passage from The World of Ice and Fire. The last of the Bronze Kings was Yorwick's grandson, Robar II, who inherited Runestone from his sire less than a fortnight before his 16th name day, yet proved to be a warrior of such ferocity and cunning and charm that he almost succeeded in stemming the Andal tide. By that time the Andals controlled three-quarters of the Vale and had begun to fight amongst themselves, as had the first men before them. Robar Roy saw opportunity in their disunity. Across the Vale, a handful of first men still held out against the Andals, the Red Forts of Red Fort, the Hunters of Longbow Hall, the Belmores of Strongsong, and the Coldwaters of Coldwater Burn, chief amongst them. One by one, Robar made alliance with each of them, and many smaller clans and houses besides, bringing them to his cause with marriages, grants of land, gold, and, in one celebrated case, by outshooting the Lord Hunter in an archery contest. Legend claims that King Robar cheated. So honeyed was his tongue that he even won the allegiance of Ursula Upcliffe, a reputed sorceress who called herself Bride of the Merlin King. Many of the lords who gathered beneath his banners had been petty kings, but now they set aside their crowns, bending the knee before Robar Royce and proclaiming him High King of the Vale, the Fingers, and the Mountains of the Moon. It fits to say that King Robar made the best out of a bad situation and turned his house into a kingdom-sized player. Instead of fighting the Shets to be king of just one finger or even the whole hand, Robar Royce used his skills and resources, as well as the looming fear of a common enemy, to become the only person ever to bear the title High King of the Vale. Something I'm sure the Royces today still remember. Finally united as one people under a single ruler, the first men went on to win a series of smashing victories against their divided, quarrelsome conquerors. Wisely, King Robar did not attempt to attack all Andals everywhere to drive them from his shores. Instead, he warred upon one enemy at a time, often making common cause with one Andal chief to bring down another. This was a huge advantage. I hardly knew explain why, but 
Though the Andals were more numerous, they were disunited and quarrelsome, like the first men of the Vale themselves had been until recently. King Robar capitalized on this brilliantly. But there were just so many darn Andals. It wasn't enough. Eventually, the Andals themselves united, and then that was the end of Robar's advantage. He already had the disadvantage in numerical superiority and was relying on the fact that the Andals weren't together on anything. But once they started to get together, there was really nothing that could be done. But King Robar and his lords, again, just didn't see it that way, and that's not their way to be fatalistic and to give up. So eventually they fought a decisive battle. It went back and forth for a while, but the first men started to falter. As the Andals came pouring through the gap in the ranks of the first men, victory seemed within their grasp. But Robar Royce was not so easily defeated. Where another man might have fallen back to regroup or fled the field, the High King commanded a counterattack. He led the charge himself, smashing through the confusion with his champions by his side. In his hand was Lady Forlorn, that dread blade that he had plucked from the dead hands of the King of the Fingers. Then he heard the trumpets ringing through the dawn air, a sound coming from behind him, and turning in his saddle, the High King beheld in dismay five hundred fresh Andal knights pouring down the slopes of the giant's lands to take his own host in the rear. The rest was a rout. Attacked from front and rear, the last great host of the First Men of the Vale was cut to pieces. It's possible that was the last great host of the First Men, period. But maybe not. We don't know. Interesting, though. So King Robar stood defiant in the face of a shattering defeat and almost turned things around. The Chronicles do not state who slew King Robar. In fact, it doesn't even state that he died. Perhaps he was captured, but that seems doubtful, too. He seems like the type to die before yielding. You never know. He was a young guy. You know, real stubborn and... Hey, he was a Royce, right? Of their time under Aaron Rule in the early days, we know little. Clearly, they kept, or later regained, if they lost it for a time, much of their former power. Perhaps there was a marriage, or marriages. Perhaps Runestone is such a tough castle that it gives them leverage when surrendering. No one wants to pay for a several-year siege, after all. That's expensive. Especially a stubborn house like the Royces. If you know that they're stubborn... You're like, geez, we're going to besiege these guys. Ugh, what a, what a chore that'll be. Think Stannis and Storm's End during Robert's Rebellion. That's, that's probably a decent parallel. Now, though they may seem stubborn, or they are stubborn in some of these other ways, especially with the issue of the bronze armor, they clearly know what it's up when it came to swords. The quote above had King Robar wielding the now Corbray-held blade Lady Forlorn. But this is a different Lady Forlorn. That's important to note here. Not the modern Valyrian steel blade. This is way, way too old. This time period we're talking about for Valyrian steel to be around. Thousands of years short at this point. There, and there are other examples of this. For example, the original ice Stark blade was not a Valyrian steel blade. Later. They named the When they got it, they kept that name. So this is another example of that same circumstance. Though, when Valyrian steel did come to Westeros, the Royces got theirs. Uh, probably about 400 years ago was when it happened. House Royce would have acquired a Valyrian steel blade called Lamentation. And then coming up in part three, we'll find out why the Royces don't have it anymore. First, I want to mention a few new Patreon titles we have for uh, for purchase. You can be the Queen of Love and Beauty, which is our first Patreon title that's intended to be given to somebody else. We also have the Pirate King slash Pirate Queen position, in which... Your deeds will be read aloud on the show. And King Beyond the Wall. 
fun stuff. Anyway, let's move on to part three, Dragons in the Veil. Though we've pointed out some, and we'll point out more, examples of Royce honorable, prideful stubbornness, there will be mostly peace with House Targaryen, especially during the era of dragons. I suppose this time they saw the writing on the wall and didn't struggle against the inevitable, and once they had given their word, they kept it. Plus, they were no longer independent at the time this all began. They were already vassals of the Aarons, and as loyal vassals, they would go the way the Aarons went. So when Visenya came to the Vale during Aegon's conquest, the result was the pledging of loyalty to House Targaryen by young Lord Ronald Aaron. There's no evidence House Royce did anything other than accept their liege lord's decision. Vagar had burned the fleet at Gulltown during the conflict. Something nearby Runestone would be more aware of than most. Some may have even been able to see the smoke or have seen the dragon. And that may have been enough to uh, say, hey, uh, I sure hope we uh, yield to those guys. Damn. Now, when King Aegon died to be replaced by his indecisive and weak-willed son Aenys, Janos Aaron tried to take House Aaron's seat, the Airy, for himself from his brother Ronald, and the Royces came in. Lord Royce of Runestone gathered forces that swept away the rebels under Jonas Aaron, penning him and his followers in the Eyrie, although this led directly to the murder of the imprisoned Lord Ronald when Jonas sent his brother flying out the moon door to his death. Well, they paid for that. <laughs> Magor got them good. So, the Aarons would grow close to the Targaryens, with several marriages between the two houses over the centuries. Through the first of these, the Royces would also gain a connection to the royal family. First, Hubert Aaron, Lord of the Airy, married a lady of House Royce, and their probably son, not sure, maybe grandson, but Lord Roderick Aaron was his name. He married Princess Daella Targaryen, who was one of the daughters of Jaehaerys and Alysanne. Now, this daughter of Roderick and Daella was named Emma Aaron, and she, in turn, married Jaehaerys and Alysanne's grandson, Prince Viserys, in 94 AC. Now, of course, Prince Viserys eventually became King Viserys I. So House Royce could now claim a connection to the royal family via Emma's grandmother-slash-great-grandmother. Only three years later, another connection was added, a more direct one. Damon had been wed to Rhea Royce in 97 AC when she was heir to the ancient seat of Runestone in the Vale. It was a fine, rich match, but Damon found the Vale little to his liking and liked his wife even less, and they were soon estranged. Now, this Damon is Damon Targaryen, the rogue prince, which is also Prince Viserys' younger brother. So both were married to the highest of Vale nobility, Though Damon would have no children with Rhea Royce, Viserys and Emma had Rhaenyra the same year Damon and Lady Rhea wed. And was this an attempt to take over the Royce lands? The lack of children made things simpler, and it didn't happen. But what would have happened if they did have kids? Usually houses don't agree to marriages that cause their name to go extinct or to cause them to lose their lands. They would That's like the last thing they would do unless they just had no other choice. So I think they'd be Royces due to agreement or normal circumstance. Often when a land is on, when land is on the line, the normal scenario of a wife taking the husband's name isn't always followed. Especially if the husband is much lower born than the, than the wife. Of course, in this case, that's the opposite. Damon Targaryen, of course, is the highest born you can be, basically. So the other alternative is that the Royces were somehow forced, coerced into it, politically or otherwise. But it doesn't sound like that could be the case because it doesn't sound like there was any bad blood between them. I mean, the Royces were on good terms with the crown just a bit later, as we'll see. 
And that wouldn't have happened if the Targaryens had just tried to take over their ancient castle, I would think. That wouldn't go over well at all. So, in any case, though, what an interesting combination of blood those kids would have had if they existed, Daemon and Reyes. Especially if they looked Targaryen but were called Royce. They'd be bronze dragons. Daemon's grandfather, Jaehaerys the Old King, had a bronze dragon in his own. It was a real one, Vermithor. He did not get bronze great-grandchild dragons, however. Now, four years later, the old king's son and heir and father to Daemon and Viserys, Prince Balon, died. And the succession needed settling. The great lords of the realm were called together. At the Great Council of 101 AC, the Irons played little role as Lady Jane was in her minority. To the council in her stead came the Lord Protector of the Vale, Yorbert Royce of Runestone. <laughs> Yorbert. <laughs> they do like the Y names, it seems. Yorbert, Yorwick... Bronze Jan, uh, Isilla, his daughter, adds uh, just a trend like the T names from the Lannisters, I suppose. Anyway, whether he was biased due to the family connection or not, the decision was not close. I'm referring to this great council. Prince Viserys became King Viserys I, eventually, and the Royces now had a blood connection to the Queen of Westeros. In other words, the Queen was related to someone named Yorbert. <laughs> Uh, so when the Dance of the Dragons broke out, it should surprise no one that the Vale, led by Lady Arryn, declared for Princess Rhaenyra, even though Prince Daemon Targaryen had been told he was not welcome there, and Prince Daemon was Rhaenyra's wife. Huh. Husband! <laughs> since the Targaryen line continued through her son Viserys, every Targaryen-blooded person since Rhaenyra and her mother, Emma Arryn, have a drop of Royce, including Egg, Danny, Bloodraven, all those guys. They've all got a little bit of Royce. During the war itself... The Vale remained staunch for Rhaenyra, sending soldiers and assistants. And of course, Lady Jane, being the ruler of the Vale, of course, you could see why she might support the female claimant, given that she was almost certainly faced with people who tried to deny her right to rule based on her being a woman. So she probably, you can see that's kind of an obvious uh, partnership there. During the war itself, we don't really have anecdotes for how, what they did besides sending soldiers. We have hardly anything about the Royces, but we do have an important single incident that, once again, speaks to the Royce character. Sir Willem Royce stood bravely in the face of certain death against the mob, wielding lamentation, that Valyrian steel blade we mentioned earlier. Interestingly, he's a Sir Willem and not the Lord Royce. Normally, it's the Lord that wields the blade. So I'm guessing Sir Willem was either an outstanding fighter or he was the heir, uh, with his father being a bit on the older side. Something like that, maybe. This was the storming of the dragon pit, though, that he stood up to the mob, charging in to kill the dragons. These, these people were whipped into a frenzy by that crazy street preacher guy. And he stood up to a mob. That's really something, isn't it? But didn't go well for him. This resulted in the death of five dragons, the loss of both Sir Willem Royce and the Valyrian sword Lamentation that he bore. So the sword was never recovered. No idea if he was wearing the bronze armor or not. But if he was, clearly that was recovered. Though perhaps not. Maester Deniston and his questions speculates that the armor is far less ancient than it appears. Alright, we've, we've mentioned the armor several times. This is a good enough time as any to get into it in more detail. Since Sir Willem is one of the best examples of a Royce in actual battle, thanks to Lysa Tully, <laughs> that we do get a glimpse. Now... If he was wearing it, well, it clearly didn't protect him from harm, but that's no surprise. He was faced with a mob. <laughs> it's hard to survive that, even uh, with really great armor. <laughs> so 
but he did stand defiantly in the face of death and died for his queen. Well, died for her dragons anyway. And it's interesting to see that if he was wearing the armor, well, it seems unlikely that the armor was recovered and not the sword. I mean, the dragon pit collapsed. It can, it's, you can easily see why nothing was recovered from that. Uh, but I got to say, I think the stubbornness around the armor is maybe a little overstated. We get a great example right at the beginning of Game of Thrones. Andar, Robar, those are, t- those are uh, Bronze Yon's surviving sons after Waymar who died, his first and second sons, and Yon himself all showed up to the tourney of the hands, the tournament in Ned's honor. And they wore steel armor for the tournament, but it, had, it was engraved with bronze runes. So I don't know that if they would wear steel armor in a tournament, would they really wear the bronze armor in battle? I don't, I don't think so. I honestly think that they wear that for show. And when it comes to real battle, they wear the steel, this kind of steel with the bronze runes engraved on it. So I don't think they're stupid enough to wear the bronze armor. I think that's just a, a thing that's kind of been thrown around, but the evidence seems to be that they've kind of moved on from that and wear it as a traditional thing, um, you know, to show off maybe. But I imagine if and when we see Bronze Yon and or Andar or Nestor or any of the others, Nestor is part of the cadet branch. I don't think they have access to the armor, but if they did, I don't think we're going to see any of them actually wear it when it comes down to it. I think we're going to, I think it's only a thing they wear, you know, for functions, for events, not for actual fighting. But we'll see. We'll see for sure. I imagine we'll see, get a chance to see that for sure and confirm that one way or the other. One thing that we also have added to our wheelhouse for future episodes is we're going to be weaving in questions that people have asked us about the topic. Usually these topics come from Patreon subscribers, but they can come from anybody. If you send in a good enough question, we'll answer it on the episode if it's relevant and if we don't cover it normally. A lot of questions kind of get answered throughout the course of our normal coverage. But a few questions stand out as particularly interesting. This question from our friend Lucifer Means Lightbringer, also a Patreon supporter and a podcaster, newly minted podcaster. He's got one episode out at this point. Check that out. He wants to know if he think if the the runes maybe would help against the others or their crazy, magical, icy, pale swords. Well... Who knows? (laughs) I think they might have believed that's what it was supposed to do. That may have been the idea. And maybe it's like a bit of bravery placebo effect where they believe it helps them. And so they're wearing it. It gives them extra confidence. As for actually helping? eh, I don't know. I mean, how could I know? I'm guessing no, it didn't. They may have, you know, like a lot of ancient superstitions, swinging a cat around over your head or, you know not crossing under a ladder. These things don't matter, probably. (laughs) But, so I think it's more along those lines. Something superstitious, something they told themselves would help. But maybe there's something to it. If we think about, but let's entertain the possibility that it did matter. Perhaps it had something to do with the Long Night. Perhaps it did impact the Whites or the others. Perhaps they hate those runes. It's possible. And if that's the case, maybe we'll get to see that in action too. Kind of excited to, to see if it does happen. Because you know there's going to be some conflicts with the others coming up. And I bet you the Royces are going to be involved. I don't know if that prologue was just a prologue. We might be expecting to see the Royces stand particularly tall against the others. I don't know if that'll, I don't know if that'll end well for them. But it's really interesting to, to try to connect these modern traditions to ancient superstitions. I mean, they've been doing this for 10,000 years, possibly. Keeping these runes on their armor and, and on their sigil, etc., I wish we knew about a little more about what those runes meant. 
Maybe we'll find out. What did it mean to their enemies? Did their did the, the Shets care about these runes? Did they were like, oh no, here they come with their bronze armor? Or did they think it was funny? Like, oh, these idiots with their stupid bronze armor. I don't know. It's an interesting question. I think it could go a lot of ways. There's probably a little of both. There's probably some people that thought it was silly, and a lot of other people were maybe legitimately scared of it. Maybe it was a good positive piece of aggressive propaganda. They're more afraid of the Royces because they have this magic going on, or that they have this ancient connection to the first men or to the old gods. That could I could see somebody being afraid of that, or or at least causing some doubt amongst the enemies. So a lot of things that the Royces might think it gives to them. And it's hard to pinpoint those things, but you can see how, despite the nebulosity of it all, is that a word? Nebulosity? How it could have a lot of different positive impacts, even though from the from a high level, it seems a little silly. But it's probably not that silly, as I've shown, I hope. The Royces only took an indirect role in the aftermath after the Dance of the Dragons. Now we're getting back into the flow of history here. During the regency of Aegon III, many different men held the position. At, in 134, the regent was Sir Corwin Corbray. He was killed by a crossbow man at Runestone in an incident we know depressingly little about. That sounds like quite an event. It might have just been an accident, though. But it might have been an assassination. It might have been a Royce Corbray power struggle kind of thing. So, hmm, I wish we knew more about that. I don't know, maybe the Royces were a little upset about some things that happened during the dance. Uh, or maybe not. We don't know. This crossbow man could have just been some random crow doof. <laughs> random man jack. Baseborn or not. Now, during the Blackfire Rebellions, House Aaron was loyal to the Targaryens. Now, from what we know about the general character of the Royces, as we've been describing, it would, it would probably be wrong to just guess that they declared for Damon Blackfire. But on our website www.historyofwesteros.com. As a companion to our recent Red Grass Field episode, we gave some reasons why things might have been different that time around. And of course, there must surely be some exceptions among the lords of Runestone as to being stubborn and loyal. There's got to be a few bad apples in the bunch. Bad bronze apples. Am I going too far with these bronze metaphors? Yeah, probably. Let's move on to the next part. Part four, A Song of Ice and Fire and bronze. How does the bronze of House Royce fit into and impact ice and fire? We'll answer that throughout and at the end of this part. But first, we need to set it all up. There are a lot of interesting family connections with the Royces. Now, due to their first men origins and traditions, perhaps, they've had at least two marriages with the Starks of Winterfell in fairly recent times, and there could have easily been some from before that. Lord Edwile, a.k.a. Ned's grandfather, had a sister named Jocelyn who married Benedict Royce, a younger son of Lord Raymar Royce of the junior branch. I suppose the one that produced Nestor and Miranda. This blood connection is a small part of why Bronzion Royce wanted to join the War of Five Kings with Rob Stark. When speaking to Lady Lysa, he may have appealed to the fact that the Tully and Royce both have blood connections to the Starks, but obviously... That didn't happen. <laughs> and that's also not the only reason for Bronze Yawn, as we'll see later. But the more important case is with Lord Baron Stark, Edwile's grandfather, who married Laura Royce. Lord Baron died to Dagon Greyjoy's Reavers, but before that, Laura gave birth to Lord Willem, Edwile, Lord William, who is Edwile and Jocelyn's father. Also, she gave birth to the Artos the Implacable, Roderick the Wandering Wolf, 
and four others. According to George himself, in a teaser, Lord Baron's death was said to cause leadership and possible succession problems. We'll see this in a future Duncan Egg novella, currently untitled at the time of this recording, but nicknamed the She-Wolves of Winterfell. So it seems that Laura Royce, mother of so many Starks, was probably one of these She-Wolves. The Bronze Wolf. We had a Bronze Dragon and a Bronze Salmon. (laughs) Why not a Bronze Wolf? So the current Starks all have great-great-great-grandmother Royce. But wait, that's through Rickard Stark. And he married his own cousin, Liara Stark. And Liara is the child of Roderick the Wandering Wolf. This makes Liara a granddaughter of Laura. So the current Starks also have a great-great-grandmother Royce, but it's the same person. Think about that too much and your brain melts down. All the current Starks, great-great-grandmother Royce and a great-great-great-grandmother Royce. Who's the same person? Yeah, all right. Perhaps a more manageable consideration from all this was Benjen. Thinking at all of this distant Stark Royce kinship when he went in search of, of Waymore? Is it possible? I mean, it's the job of the First Ranger anyway, we might assume. But still, it could have crossed his mind that this was extra important. Another takeaway from this Stark Royce connection is the implied evidence of persistent old gods worship, which we used as evidence for the Royce is still having their tree. Now, very early in the Game of Thrones, Catelyn mentions that Ned built a small sept for her so she could have a place to worship the Seven. So that means there wasn't a small sept at Winterfell before that. So Laura Royce, she didn't care. The Manderly brides that the Starks have had over the years, they didn't care either. Or maybe they did care and their husband just didn't have that built for them. But in any case, Laura would have gotten one if she wanted it because if she was the mother to so many and uh, her husband was dead... I think she could have gotten that if she wanted, but she she didn't. So that's interesting, I think. So I think they uh, were more tilted towards the first men, or maybe they just sort of were in the middle, and because they went to the north, they drifted farther in that direction. But it's interesting that it was Catelyn was the first one to really maintain her worship of the Seven when getting into the north. I wonder if there's more to it than that. It's time to fast forward to arguably the most important historical event from just before the start of the books, Robert's Rebellion. As we said, the Stark Royce connection is recent enough to count for a little, but now comes the greater factor that made Bronze Jan Royce wanted to enter the war as a rebel, despite their history of loyalty. He's sticking with the loyalty that matters with him more. Now, he was at the Tournament of Harrenhal and was defeated by Rhaegar himself. Barristan considers how things might have been much different had he beaten the prince, as that would have prevented him from giving the crown of love and beauty to Lyanna. Perhaps Bronze Jan has had the same thoughts, especially given how the war started and how it affected people that he loved. The brutal executions of Rickard and Lyanna Stark are well known, but also put to death was all but one of Brandon's companions, including one Kyle Royce. For now, pride and family honor comes before loyalty, and few question the honor of a man who turns against anyone, king or commoner, that murders a member of their house. Blood feuds can trump loyalty even to the king, So I wouldn't say the Royces were being disloyal here. All you could say technically they were, but they've got the best possible reason. Just outright murdering a member of their family. And this Kyle Royce was probably not just some random Royce. Brandon was an heir to Winterfell. And given the the context of his other companions, I feel like other of them were probably heirs or at least high up in the family. For example, Elbert Aaron was one of the other ones killed with Brandon. And Elbert was the heir to the to the Airy, even though he wasn't John Aaron's son, because John Aaron didn't have a child until Sweet Robin. 
who wasn't born by at this point. So what we're actually told, though, is that the sons, when Ares seized them all, they stood hostage for the fathers. And that's how Lord Rickard was lured there, after all, to face fire. <laughs> now, for some unknown reason, Ethan Glover was spared. But all the other sons and fathers were killed. Now, since we just pointed out that John Aaron wasn't Elbert's father, I guess no one stood for Elbert. Because John Aaron certainly wasn't murdered. Not then, anyway. He was murdered later. But not by King Ares. So, what I'm saying here is that either there was no Father Royce to stand for the Royce, or there was, more likely, a Royce who went to stand for Kyle, his own father, and was also killed. That has huge ramifications. Kyle's death is enough for the Royces to join the rebels, to join Robert's side. Two deaths, I mean, it's a, we don't even need to think about it. They would, if they murdered the Lord and his heir, or assuming Kyle was the heir, or if he was just a, even if he was only a second or third son, that's still huge, right? So John Aaron's path was clear. No doubt his mind was eased a bit, knowing that the murder or murders of, of these Royces would ensure that they'd be with him. That's a silver lining of sorts, I suppose you might say. If you're going to rebel, it's nice to know that the second most powerful house in your area is going to be with you. That fact mattered right away. Here's a really interesting little tidbit that I don't know if anyone's picked up on. Let's see. It may have saved Ned Stark's life. The assured loyalty of the Royces meant that John Aaron could act quickly, whereas otherwise he'd have to worry about them right away. They'd be, instead of being, you know, the quick ally, they'd be a primary concern. They'd be like, okay... We're, we're going to be rebels. What are the Royces doing? They're the, next, they're the next most powerful house around. We need to either get them on our side or take care of them one way or another. So the fact that John knew right away, probably without even talking to them, although they probably did talk, but he probably didn't need to talk with them to know where they stood. He could count on them right away, and that's huge. Now, here's where you recall that geography lesson that I gave earlier on. House Grafton rules Gulltown these days, thanks to their, you know, betrayal of the Shets. They still have, that, still have control of Gulltown to this day as they did during the rebellion, but they didn't rise with John Aaron. They stayed loyal to King Ares. This didn't work out for them. Here's the account of Lord Godric Borel of Sweet Sister. My father sat where I sit now when Lord Eddard came to Sisterton. Our maester urged us to send Stark's head to Ares to prove our loyalty. It would have meant a rich reward. The Mad King was open-handed with them as pleased him. By then we knew that John Aaron had taken Gulltown, though. Robert was the first man to gain the wall and slew Mark Grafton with his own hand. This Baratheon is fearless, I said. He fights the way a king should fight. So picture the alternative. If House Royce isn't with John Aaron, they can't go for Gulltown right away. Imagine that. They head for Gulltown and the Royces are right behind them. That's terrible strategically. They could get taken in the rear. So being able to count on them and adding their strength to the assault meant they could go straight for it. Boom. Right for Gulltown. No worries. Big enough army, no worry about your flanks or your rear. And Bronjon probably felt similar to Lord Godric Borel. When he saw Robert fighting at Gulltown, probably convinced him. And that was huge, right? If, if Lord Godric Borel's father hadn't known about the taking of Gulltown, or more importantly, Gulltown hadn't been taken, he probably cuts Ned's head off right then and there, sends it to Ares, and that's that. No more Ned Stark. Not Instead of his head being chopped off much later by... Sir Illyn and Joffrey. He dies as a 16-year-old, and that's that. Then there'd be no Game of Thrones, so good thing for us all, right? <laughs> now, those three, though, Ned, 
Robert and Bronzion, they became friends. And that's pretty important. And that takes us to the juiciest part of all, the start of the books, right? Now, we've already talked about Waymar and his heroic but perhaps foolish stand against the others. But eight to nine months before the prologue of A Game of Thrones, Bronzion accompanied Sir Waymar, again, his third son, to the wall, and he stopped in Winterfell to hunt with Ned and beat him up in the practice yard. A tidbit that says a few things about their respective skills. Bronjan beat up Sir Ned, beat, Sir Ned, beat up Ned and Sir Roderick, perhaps at the same time. And this stands as an interesting contrast. It either tells us that Bronjan is a serious badass, which, you know, he's as tall as the hound and huge, and Sansa describes him as really fearsome looking, someone that could snap lesser men in half despite being old. But it also says a few interesting things about Ned's fighting skills, doesn't it? That's a hotly debated topic, I suppose, in the fandom, because some people think Ned beat Arthur Dane, even though there's a lot of evidence he had help. We don't know what kind of help that was. But if Bronzion can beat him down so easily, eh, that's, that belongs in the conversation. Let's just say that much. Another example of Bronzion's defiance and his loyalty to his friends and blood ties, rather than to Lysa, is that he and his sons entered the tourney of the hands, which was held in Ned's honor, of course, early in the books, despite Lysa ordering no Veilman to participate. So that's a little little something there. And, of course, again, I want to repeat that the Royces were wearing steel armor in the tournament. So when Robert goes hunting for the last time, Ned sends Sir Robar, again, Jan's second son, to deliver the message that Lord Tywin has been given an ultimatum. We all know that famous ultimatum when Ned proclaimed Sir Gregor uh, an enemy of the state, etc., etc., and ordered Tywin to come and answer for what Gregor has done. Now you've got to wonder, what did Bronzion, who was also on that hunting trip with Robert, what did he and his son talk about when Robar came with that news? Violence in the Riverlands is a pretty big deal. And Littlefinger even suggests to Ned that he reach out to Bronzion for assistance with these upcoming succession problems. I think that's really important. We know what Littlefinger was after. He wanted to bring Ned down. So I think he wanted to bring the Royces in to bring them down too. Think about the problems Littlefinger's having with the Royces now. Well, he's mostly got them under control, but he knew, I think, that far back that they'd be a problem because he's a man who knows how to read people and he knows that Bronzion is a stubborn, honorable, tough guy who doesn't fall for his BS. And he was right. Bronjon doesn't fall for his BS, but pretty much everybody else does. But I think Littlefinger knew in advance that Bronjon would be a tr- would be problematic. And so he sought to tie him to Ned and Ned's foolishness and maybe help him bring him down. But well, for whatever reason, though, Ned did not take that advice. And maybe he just didn't want to put his friend in danger or his sons in danger. And I don't know that Bronjon could have immediately made a huge difference because they came for the tournament. They didn't bring like an army with them or anything. It would have just been a couple of guys helping out. Four or five dudes, maybe a couple of extra swords. Wouldn't have made a huge difference. Certainly wouldn't have made a difference in the throne room there with with all the city watch turning on Ned at once without him knowing about it. Although, Bronjon might have given Ned some good advice. (laughs) He certainly needed that. But when all hell breaks loose in King's Landing, we're not sure where Bronjon was, but I assume he had gone home already because you think he would have done something if he had still been around, given his personality, type of person he is. So I'm guessing he was already gone. And I think that, well, my best guess is that he guessed correctly, I might add, that the situation between Stark and Lannister would get worse. 
And since he doesn't think he can do much good in King's Landing, best thing to do is go home, maybe get his armies ready, and more importantly, convince Lysa that they need to get involved. Of course, we know that didn't work. But he knows both of these men. He, he knows he has a lot of experience with Ned. He knows that Ned is stubborn. He knows that Ned is honorable. And he is a by-the-book type of guy. And he knows that Tywin is ruthless and pragmatic and intolerant of slights against his house. So it doesn't take a genius to put two and two together and say, this is going badly. All the smart people inside the story figured it out. You know, Varys did it. Varys knew. Littlefinger knew. Bron John, he's a smart guy. He probably figured it out, especially given how much he knew about these people involved. So I'm thinking that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to go home and, and prepare. And of course, he went. He probably did go home and prepare and then wasn't allowed to do anything, which really made him mad. Now, once Joffrey was actually crowned, one of the many people he demanded out loud to come give him homage was Bronze Jan and his sons, among others. Not only did that not happen, but Sir Robar, again, the second son, he showed up with Renly. In his rainbow guard, no less. Sir Robar the Red. It is Sir Robar who escorts Catelyn to the Sept on the eve of the battle between Renly and Stannis that never actually wound up happening because Renly died first. But the brief time with Catelyn, seeing her as noble and peaceful, may have helped her earn his trust, which was really important. And of course, it also indirectly led to his death. Her own voice sounded wild and crazed to her, but the words poured out in a rush as the blades continued to clash behind her. A shadow with a sword! I swear it! I saw! Are you blind? The girl loved him! Help her! She glanced back, saw the second guardsman fall, his blade dropping from limp fingers. Outside there was shouting. More angry men would be bursting in on them any instant she knew. She's innocent, Robar. You have my word on my husband's grave and my honor as a Stark. That resolved him. I will hold them, Sir Robar said. Get her away. He turned and went out. Like his brother Sir Waymar, killed not so long before, he wound up outclassed as well. Loras Tyrell was so blinded by his rage over Renly's death that he slew Sir Robar. Super angry Loras is probably not as dangerous as a White Walker, but a hopeless fight is a hopeless fight. You end up dead either way. I wonder what Bronze Jan has heard about his own son's deaths. There's not much he can do about Sir Waymar dying. You wonder if he thinks, he probably thinks Sir Waymar was killed by wildlings. He may eventually find out the truth and that, that might make him feel more proud of his son, although it wouldn't take the sting away. But is there bad blood between the Royces and the Tyrells? That is where I'm going with this. If Jan knows that Loras slew his son for nothing, for a BS reason, which even Loras has started to realize by the end of Storm of Swords when he becomes convinced that Brienne didn't do it when he comes around on that whole thing, oof, that could be a problem. Tyrell-Royce hostility. Well, the Tyrells probably aren't upset, but the Royces quite likely, Bronze Jan, if he knows, which he might not, but I bet he does. It's not exactly a secret. So not only is it interesting, all this possibility with Robar's death and what implications that might have for the future of politics, but it's interesting also how much Kat's word meant to Sir Robar. He was wavering. He wasn't sure. He, he didn't know what was happening. He had doubt. But the thing that sold him on Catelyn's words was her pledging on her honor as, as a Stark, as a Tully, and on Ned's grave. That meant a lot to him. 
coming from a house like the Royces, you can kind of see why. The oath of someone from a noble house, to us, it doesn't sound like it should matter more. But in a culture like Westeros, it does. If they have credibility. Jamie Lannister's oath means nothing to just about anybody. But Ned Stark's oath meant a lot. And so did Stannis's. Because those guys had reputations for being honorable. And someone like the Royces are going to care more about that. Obviously, you know, right or wrong, it certainly worked in this case for Robar. You know, it didn't work out well for him. But he believed her. And he was right to believe her, even though it got him killed. How could he have known that, though? Not only does Bronze Jan repeatedly try to get Lysa to bring the Vale into the war, but he's one of her suitors. He tries to marry her. His own wife has been dead for a little while, I guess. But trying to get her to enter the war is putting it mildly. When Sansa thinks on it in A Feast for Crows, she puts it in stronger terms. The senior branch of House Royce was close to open revolt over her aunt's failure to aid Rob in his war, and the Wainwoods, Redforts, Belmores, and Templetons were giving them every support. Notice that the Redforts and Belmores were particularly men- specifically mentioned as houses with strong first men ties. So, little segue there to understand why some of those loyalties went the way they did. Now, after Lysa's death, of course, things changed. The Lord's Declarant appear to contest Littlefinger's control over Lord Robert Aaron. They first met at Runestone and pledged to stand together. Bronze Jan fares no better, that's Littlefinger, than Bronze does against Steel <laughs> so far. They agreed to raise Robert Aaron at Runestone, the Lord's Declarant, which shows you who's kind of the de facto most powerful amongst that group. Eh, the Royces, as you would think. But it's good to confirm. Now, as part of all this corrupting of Jan's allies, because that's how Littlefinger reacts, first of all, he undoes the Lord's declarant with his little ploy with Lynn Corbray. And then, which Bronze Jan sort of understands, but there's nothing he can do about it. So, as a part of it, to protect himself, Littlefinger corrupts. Bronze Jan's cousin, Nestor Royce, who was from the lesser branch, uh, as part of his plan to isolate Jan Royce's support. So, he knew he couldn't get the best Royces, Littlefinger, so what's the next best thing is to get whatever Royce you can get, because the Royce name carries a lot of weight. So, better a lesser Royce than no Royce at all. And hey, what what can you do to make a lesser Royce less lesser? While you give them the Gates of the Moon, a hugely powerful, important castle. So, the difference between the cadet branch of Royce and the main runestone branch just got a little closer in power. And that certainly drives a wedge between them. Because loyalty to Bronzeon would mean potentially losing the Gates of the Moon, which Nestor Royce isn't about to do that. He, if you recall the scene in which he received it, Dude was about to weep. He was so happy and proud. And also, he felt like he deserved it. So, uh, he thinks he deserves it. He's not giving it up. (laughs) He is not. Stubborn man, too. I mean, he's a Royce after all, right? So, I I think we might be headed for Royce-on-Royce conflict. Something we have no experience with. We don't know that that's... I'm sure it's had to have happened in the past before. But, don't know how it's going to play out this time. It should be very interesting. It's also important to keep track of some of these other Royces as we wind down this episode. Albar Royce is the son of Nestor, and he looks like his father. Doesn't mean much that someone looks like their father. I'm not going to use that as evidence towards the genetic theory, but it's something. Miranda Royce, little schemer, helping out, uh, hanging out with Sansa. Don't know what's in store for her. Very interesting, though. She seems to know some things that are interesting. She seems to know some secrets. 
But for better coverage of that, check out our episode on the spoiler chapter, the lane spoiler chapter from The Veil, from The Winds of Winter, released during the season of Game of Thrones. I believe that would have been around June. Andar Royce is Bronzeon's last surviving son and his eldest. He's the heir. We know very little of him. It's possible he becomes very important because Bronzeon might die. He's an older guy. He's standing up against Littlefinger. You know, Littlefinger doesn't have to assassinate him or anything. He doesn't seem to be worried about him right now because no one's helping him. And Littlefinger seems to have everyone on his side. That could change, though. Bronjon is is not idle. He's certainly done his own thing to get close to Harry the Air. He's the one who was raising Harry the Air for quite a while. Threw a tournament for him. Arranged, arranged it so that Harry would win. So, you know, the Royces are loyal and stubborn and honorable, but they're not above, you know, a little chicanery to, uh, for, to get the ends that they want. So we're going to move on to the outro. We're going to talk about a few other things from a high level, a few summary events from the Royces, maybe a few more things we might expect from them. After that, we're going to have the credits. Stay tuned after the credits because we're going to have a few random tidbits of Royce trivia, some little interesting fun things that are that we couldn't fit into the narrative because they're just isolated details. Also, there'll be one more question that we answer from a listener. In the future, we'll probably have more questions to answer as we make it more well-known that we'll be doing that. We're still going to do the Q&A episodes in the future. The next one should be December 2015. And as opposed to December 2016, a whole year away, right? <laughs> That should be fun. So stay tuned after the credits and after the outro. Throughout the episode, we told a lot of different stories about House Royce, brought up a lot of different anecdotes, a lot of things from history, a lot of things from recent times. You may have noticed that there wasn't a single tale of treachery, nothing particularly dishonest, no one going back on their word for the most part, just straight up nobility. You know, there's corruption. No, Nestor Royce is no saint. But I think that's interesting. There's a possibility they rose for Damon in the Blackfire Rebellion, as we've said. But even that is a pure guess without barely any evidence for. So that's kind of interesting, right? And that says a lot about who they are, maybe what we can expect from them. I think it could mean a, a moment of betrayal would be particularly surprising, or more likely it just means that we should expect the Royces to continue to be mostly upstanding and stick to their word, you know, stick to their guns, <laughs> their bronze guns. Now, again, it's I want to repeat the interesting connections they have. Stark, Aaron, and Targaryen. Better connections than pretty much any secondary house, except for probably Hightower. Now, they're not as rich as the Hightowers either, but they do pretty well. Again, they have their own ports. They have probably have very fertile lands, etc., etc. Now, Littlefinger... He's, of course, formidable, but even if he's around to see them, the White Walkers will change even his cynical perspective. Instead of seeking to undo a man like Bronzeon, assuming he's still around, he'll need to rely on such men to be war leaders, because we know Littlefinger is not one, and he knows that too. As arrogant as he is, I don't think he even thinks he could pull that off. Yeah, maybe, maybe he does. We'll see. So with Winter coming and House Aaron, well, not exactly capable of leading the Vale at the moment, if ever again, will House Royce stand tall? Surely they would see it as their duty, and as a point of pride, they like to say that they're, you know, the most powerful, the most noble house in the Vale, besides the Aarons. And in fact, if this whole Aaron, Airy the Air, Harold Harding stuff doesn't work out, 
Maybe he dies, meaning Harry or something else. Maybe might we even see the Royces trying to take over the Vale as the remaining primary house if the Aarons are extinct, in other words? When number one falls, it's usually number two that takes over, after all. That would be interesting. So what we could be left with is a situation where the Royces are back in charge of the Vale again, the de facto leaders, either because Bronzeon is just the most outstanding leader from the most outstanding house that's left, and things are going really badly. Winter is coming. The others perhaps are coming. The whites are coming. That sounds like the time to, to, to let Bronze Jan take over, doesn't it? It might happen even if other people don't want it to go that way. So Bronze Jan may, like his predecessor King Robar, stand against the inevitable. Instead of an unstoppable tide of Andals, it'll be the cold and the White Walkers. Is Sir Waymar's fate perhaps what we might expect from Bronze Jan? If he's defiant in the face of this, he will parallel Sir Waymar, who did the same in the prologue. Like Sir Waymar too, bravery might not be enough. It might not be near enough. And Bronze Jan Royce might wind up paralleling his son in a much darker way. Royce's body lay face down in the snow, one arm outflung. The thick sable cloak had been slashed in a dozen places. Lying dead like that, you saw how young he was. A boy. He found what was left of the sword a few feet away. The end splintered and twisted like a tree struck by lightning. Will knelt, looked around warily, and snatched it up. The broken sword would be his proof. Garrett would know what to make of it. And if not him, then surely that old bear Mormont or Maester Eamon. Would Garrett still be waiting with the horses? He had to hurry. Will rose. Sir Waymar Roy stood over him. His fine clothes were a tatter, his face a ruin. A shard from his sword transfixed the blind white pupil of his left eye. The right eye was open. The pupil burned blue. It saw. The broken sword fell from nerveless fingers. Will closed his eyes to pray. Long, elegant hands brushed his cheek, then tightened around his throat. They were gloved in the finest moleskin and sticky with blood. Yet the touch was icy cold. Thanks to First Lord Cash Craig, Hand of the King, Lord of Mines, Lord of Makers, Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, and Warden of the West. Thanks to Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad, and Warden of the East, Lord John Reed of the Castle of Castle Woodbridge, the Lord Borealis, and the Light of the North, and Warden of the North. Frontier, Lord James Knox of the Poker Fort, Hammer of the Dornis Session, and Warden of the South. Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whisperers. Lord Robert Jacobs, Master of Corn. Grand Maester Etai wears the jeweled collar of many medals. Rosie the Clever, Master of Laws. And Lord James Tuttle, Master of Ships. Lady Dyrlis of the Castle Naki is the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Kabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Lord Damien Sand, the Resilient, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Spear Swan Song. Mary Meg, Lady of the Bloody Stepstones. Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood, Lady of Desert Robes. Jeffrey the Unflinching, Lord of Sand Lake. And Lord Greybay of the Queen City round out our list of lordly lords providing support through patreon.com slash history of Westeros. Also, Lord Commander Shepard, Commander of the History of Westeros Kingsguard. And Lord Commander George the Golden, Commander of the History of Westeros Night's Watch. Also, thanks again to Lady Gwynn for helping us with the quotes. Check out Radio Westeros. Make sure. 
And thanks again to Rhaenys Targaryen, Queen of the Wiki of Ice and Fire and Queen of Timelines and big helper behind the scenes of History of Westeros podcast. Now for some Royce trivia, some random tidbits that's fun to know, things that you have to know, things that you must know. Okay, these things aren't really that important, but they're cool. Bronze Yon defeated Thoros in the melee on Joffrey's 12th name day after his flaming sword had gone out. That's, that's a good way to, you know, wait out that sword and then brain him with a common mace, I believe was the line. Now Tywin offered Tyrion in marriage to the Royces, but was told it was an insult. That, you know, that, that was a common enough thing to happen when Tyrion was tossed around as a potential bra- uh, husband for somebody. It's unclear which Royce, though. Jan's only daughter is too young to have been the candidate, I think, though. Maybe not. But what's interesting is, because he's still a Royce, she is now marrying Sir Michael Redfort, who's a promising, upstanding knight. And, of course, the Redforts are nearby to the Royces. They're at the base of that finger. <laughs> uh, their castle is. And, of course, we've mentioned a couple times that the Redforts, like the Royces, hang on to a lot of those First Man traditions. And this would probably have something to do, again, with why Bolton sent his son to foster with the Redforts. Redfort, Redfort, yeah, yeah, they rhyme. I don't know if this anything goes any farther than that, but again, interesting possibility. There's some connection between those two in the ancient past. But back to Ysilla. She was born in around 286, so after the Lannisters were part of the royal family. So it's one thing for people to reject Tywin's offer of a marriage to Tyrion before the Lannisters were part of the royal family, but after, still. But there might be more to it. Jan isn't a fan of Tywin, like a lot of other people were. And yeah. So there's probably more to it than that. But it's still very interesting. And there may have also, it's also possible that he did have a daughter before the rebellion. And that was the offer that was made. And this daughter died young. And so she doesn't appear in the family tree. Because that happens sometimes. The really young ones that, that die before they reach a year or two old sometimes just don't even get included on family trees. We've seen that a lot. So... And we do, of course, see people arranging marriages to from with baby to other baby betrothals, of course. So that's not out of the out of the ordinary either. Well, it's weird, but it's not out of the ordinary. <laughs> now, Para Royce Frey. Para Frey was Walder Frey's first wife. Mother of Sir Stevron, Sir Emmon of Riverrun. Aaron, defeated by Royce. Ha. <laughs> and Anis, grandmother to Ryman, Jingle Bell, Sir Cleos and great-grandfather to Edwin and Black Walder. Ryella Royce is married to Sir Arwood Frey, Sir Hostine's son. This is Walder's grandson through his third wife, Amare Craycall. They have four children. Sir Arwood is said to be a guest at Derry. Or said to be at Derry, right? Not a guest. He's, a, he's at Derry at the moment. Now, Sansa remembers a funny little moment. She remembers falling in love with Sir Waymar when he passed through <laughs> on his way to the wall. She says she fell wildly in love with him. But when she's thinking about it, she thinks of it as a lifetime ago and that she was stupid at the time. She was a stupid little girl at the time. So our one remaining Patreon question that wasn't answered throughout during the episode through our normal course of going over the material comes from Ingrid Serevia, the scorpion of the salt shore. Now, why are the Royces seemingly everywhere? Well, it's, it's a question we've sort of addressed, more that we've addressed that they are everywhere. We haven't explained why. But again, Royce is in the Riverlands with the phrase. Royce in the, in the Rainbow Guard. A Royce at the Wall. Royce is in the Vale. That's no strange thing. Why are they everywhere? Well, partly it's because they're a powerful house that can afford to send people around. When Ro- Robar basically said to him, said to his, his, you know, says that he's 
a second son. He's got to go out and find his fortune somewhere. But he's surely supported a bit by his father. So it gives them a greater reach. You know, they can go farther out. They're also just extremely well-known. They're a very powerful, ancient, noble family. And you do, and, and of course, marriages from one region to another are not common, but they're not rare either. Especially when the ho these houses are not that far apart geographically. The Riverlands and the Vale are next to each other. And so it, it, it's a little stranger when you see, say, someone from the Riverlands marrying someone in Dorne. Even though they're all Faith of the Seven worshippers, Dornish culture is very different, and there's just this, this straight-up difference in distance there. The Riverlands and the Vale are a little more, have a lot more in common. So I really can't tell you exactly why they're seemingly everywhere, but I just think it's mostly because they're powerful, and they have, they've been around a while, and they get around. You know, that's what, that's what happens when you're powerful and ambitious, and you have a lot of pride. You, you think you can do things. You think you can go places, and you're often right because you have the wherewithal to do that, and you have the support of a powerful family behind you and their powerful castle and lands, etc. Now, during this episode, we pulled up a few obscurities and curiosities. Some of these are hard to catch or to fathom because House Royce's importance to the Song of Ice and Fire has grown gradually. Though present all over the map, they did very little early in the books, largely thanks to Lysa Aaron's extreme coward caution. Hmm, cowardice. No, I was right the first time. But by a feast for crows, we see what could be an internal conflict between Royce branches as well as an interesting player in Miranda Royce. Overall, the veil seems poised to matter quite a lot as the series continues. The North is facing the worst of it, probably, because they're, hey, they're the North, and they're in the, directly in the path of the White Walkers. But the veil is next. The Riverlands as well. But the veil is farther north than the Riverlands, so they're going to catch the brunt after the North. That's going to be interesting. Now, A Feast for Crows is the most subtle of the five books. I think most of us would agree with that. Certainly something we've discussed before. And listening is different than reading. You might catch things you didn't catch reading by listening. To find out, get a 30-day free audiobook subscription by going to historyofwesteros.com. The trial comes with one free download. Why not A Feast for Crows? You'll get to keep it if you don't, even if you don't keep the subscription. Once again, audible.com. You can access it through historyofwesteros.com. There's an Audible 30-day free trial button slash link in the upper right. All right, that's our show for today. Thanks to everybody for sending in questions. Remember this for the future. You can always send in questions for future episodes. We're expecting the next few episodes to be the history of House Dane and to continue the Blackfire Rebellions with the Bittersteel episode. We've got some other things cooking, and it'll be time for a Patreon vote fairly soon, which may be irrelevant to you if you're listening to this episode much past when this episode was published. Again, this is November 2015, our first episode on a house history in quite a while, something we'll be happy to continue doing, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks to everybody, and we'll see you next time. Falar Morgulis.